Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Hi, all. Welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, we're trying something new and different. We will be talking to two women at the same time, and this is a first for us. These women are literally changing the lives and landscape of some of Los Angeles's most underserved communities. What they're doing is truly remarkable and so inspirational. And before we introduce who they are, I want to introduce my co-host for the day, and that is Amanda Wallace. Hi, Amanda. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So Amanda is an associate creative director at The Woo. And she was excited to be here today to help get a little bit more insight on what makes them tick. So um, before we get into why you wanted to be here, why don't you explain who's coming today? Sure, yeah. So today we are interviewing Elizabeth Timmy and Helen Learn, who are co-directors of L.A. Moss. And L.A. Moss is a nonprofit urban design organization that strengthens lower income and underserved communities and helps shape their future through creative, architectural, and policy-based solutions. Can you tell us in simple terms what you think these women do? Yeah, so there are so many communities in need of help around L.A. And, you know, a lot of these communities have really small mom-and-pop shops um, that are passed down from generation to generation. So L.A. Mass goes into these neighborhoods, and they help these mom-and-pop shops. They make them beautiful. They paint them on the outside. They help them on the inside. And then they're also revitalizing the actual literal streets and making L.A. more walkable. So they're giving opportunity to uh, underserved communities that some of the more privileged communities might have. Exactly. And they're also working on a policy level, which is even more incredible. And they're trying to change the zoning to make it more fair for everybody. And they're trying to bring healthy food to different neighborhoods. They're doing so much. Wow. And tell me why it was important for you to be here today. So I actually grew up in one house, and my grandfather and my grandmother owned one house their whole lives. So when I was searching for my house with my husband, it was super important that this would be our forever home. So when we searched LA, we went to every neighborhood, and when we found our home. It was in Glassell Park on the east side of LA, and we just fell in love with East LA. So I love the fact that they're trying to revitalize these communities. Okay, so I have Elizabeth and Helen here with me today, and we are going to start with Helen. So Helen, I understand that you were raised in Frogtown, Los Angeles with a first-generation Chinese family. 
So I want to hear about your childhood. Frogtown is a special place in Northeast Los Angeles. It's not too far from Chinatown, from Elysian Park, and I grew up there in the 80s and 90s. My parents uh, were lucky to buy a home when it was really cheap, when no one wanted to live in Frogtown. So my childhood consists of playing on the streets and exploring all the various industrial manufacturing companies that uh, would line the LA River. They were my neighbors, and that meant that uh, they were also me and my sister's playground. And similar to me, you grew up with immigrant parents. So tell me about that. My parents are from Canton in China, and they came to America separately. They met once and decided to get married, and out I was nine months later. That was a unique experience back then because my parents were seen as very old when they got married. My How old were they? My mom was in her late 20s, and my dad was in his late 30s. Wow. My parents uh, today, even after being in America for so long, speak just a little English. They mostly speak Cantonese, and growing up, it meant that my sister and I were the translators. And it seemed perfectly normal. I went to Doris Place Elementary School, which is the same elementary school that Marilyn Monroe went to in Frogtown. Oh, interesting. And all my classmates were also children of immigrant parents from Cambodia, Vietnam, Mexico, Salvador, Guatemala. It was such a diverse community. What did your parents do when they got here for work? They tried to figure it out. My dad had lots of uh, odd and end jobs, and he ended up as a chef. So for most of my upbringing, my dad made the plain food for American Airlines, and he had the graveyard shift. So he would come home at 2 p.m. We would have to be quiet because he had to sleep, and he would take off at 11 p.m. or midnight and drove to LAX. And you mentioned in the pre-interview that um, you, you know, as a family, you experienced poverty. Tell us what that was like. It's interesting. I didn't actually know my parents were poor or that we were low income until I went to college. Ended up going to University of Pennsylvania, and that was the first time I was exposed to just kind of privilege and kind of a level of wealth that I had never experienced before. My sister and I just had fun in Frogtown because my mom was around. She was a stay-at-home mom. She was a seamstress, and she got deliveries at home. And I think what made it really special was there was the river, and there were lots of factories that had lots of scraps. So my sister and I ended up building things. We Our playground was all of Frogtown and the river, and that made our childhood so fun and special. So I would say even though we were social economically poor, uh, in our family it was like rich with love. So it's really interesting that um, for your entire childhood up until college, you had no idea that your uh, family lived in poverty. I think that's incredible because that's what felt normal to you. So what was that transition like once you kind of realized, um, wow, people live differently than how I grew up? It was a bit of a culture shock going to University of Pennsylvania, going to the East Coast. But what was great was that I had always been really fortunate to be connected with people who were humble, who cared about people. So it meant that even though I made friends who were well off, at the core, they connected with me as Helen and who I was and what my values were. I feel that my upbringing kind of made me kind of really appreciate the little things in life and then also made me appreciate the privilege that I now have. Beautiful. So you went to University of Pennsylvania and then to Harvard. 
And I'm really excited to talk to you about that because I have a 14-year-old daughter whose dream it is to go to Harvard, and she's trying to figure out now in ninth grade how to get there. So (laughs) I want to hear a little bit about your journey to get into an Ivy League school. Like, How did you self-propel to get there? So interesting. People always assume because I'm Chinese-American that I must have had a mom or a parent that made me study and made me get good grades. But the reality is my parents uh, weren't able to support me in my education. They often said, why are you studying so hard? Really? And I think I was just an ambitious kid who enjoyed studying and liked to excel. And for my parents, they grew up in the tail end of the Cultural Revolution, so that opportunity was taken from them for different reasons. So growing up, they always said, you're so lucky that you're in America and that you have a free education. So I saw school as something that was special and that was like a gift and a reward. So I think I probably internalized that and I enjoyed school. I loved learning. But I didn't know about college. I didn't know many people who went to college. I was lucky to have a mentor in my life, Steve Zimmer. He was the former LAUSD school board president. At that time, he was opening up and starting the Elysian Valley United Community Services Center, which is based in Frogtown. And Steve said, Helen, you should apply to go to college. And I thought, well, it's cost a lot of money. And I didn't know if I was going to get accepted. So he he encouraged me to go visit schools. And my dad, because he worked at for American Airlines. I got a free ticket. I ended up with a good friend. We ended up taking a trip to the East Coast on our own and taking public transit to visit schools. Great. Can you tell us about one of the earlier sparks in your life that you can attribute to what you're doing today? Something that kind of led you down to realizing what your path should be? I would say it was when I was a college kid. I was an intern for then Council President Eric Garcetti, and one of my roles was to support community organizing and outreach. I was doing that in Hollywood, um, in Silver Lake, and in Glassell Park in Frogtown, back when it was very diverse, working-class immigrant community. And one of the moments that was really special for me was that meeting people who said, I can't believe that government actually cares or there's a potential to make a difference. But yet there were people who cared and could make a difference and could hear what the challenges were and try to do something about it. I think that exposure to the potential of government or just public service in general was what shaped my interest in public policy. Great. Tell me your thoughts on Ivy League education or degrees. Are they important? Do we need them? Can you be successful without them? Has it helped you get to where you are? It's so funny. Even though I have two Ivy League degrees, I uh, struggle to say that I'm a Harvard alum or I'm an Ivy Leaguer twice over. (laughs) I think that the opportunity to have an education was great because I was just exposed to a different place, different people, different thinking. I don't know if it needed to be an Ivy League. And the reality is where I am today um, and the places I've worked and the opportunities I've had was because of individuals, people who gave me a chance. And much of that wasn't because I had a Harvard degree or a Penn degree. Can you tell us a major snag that you had in your young adult life? A key moment for me was realizing that my parents weren't going to be around forever. I was working in D.C. I loved my job. I loved my community. And I came home to L.A. for a visit and learned that my dad was going to have surgery. And the surgery was because he had potentially cancer in his kidney and Of course, classic uh, Chinese parents decide not to tell me until I was back home. And my dad luckily survived that surgery. 
he's doing well, but it made me realize that I was living so far away from my family. And I ended up leaving my job at that time in D.C. and taking a moment to figure out what I wanted to do. So after some traveling, just being on my own, I realized I'm just going to come back to L.A. And it, But it took me kind of time on my own to decide what was more important for me was to be near my family despite having a really successful career in a community and in a place like D.C. Okay, we're going to shift over to hear Elizabeth's story. Elizabeth, tell us about your family life. I am an only child, and I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. I moved here in 1994. That's two years after the riots and a year, I think, after the earthquake. And growing up in Houston was not that dissimilar from growing up here in L.A. at the age of 13. And my father, he became the dean of the School of Architecture at USC. That was this really prestigious, incredible opportunity for us. I'm a third-generation architect. So you come from a long line of architects. Yes, and my grandmother was an oil pipeline engineer. My grandfather was a machinist for Howard Hughes in the oil industry in uh, Galveston. And I come from a family of makers and three-dimensional thinkers. And my father was the first person in his family to get a college education. I grew up in a household where we were always talking about architecture and the role of architecture in society. I grew up in between Houston and a place called Nevis, West Indies, where my father did a design-build construction practice, and uh, France, where my father started an architecture school. And did you feel a pressure to become an architect just because your father was? He did not want me to be an architect. He wanted me to be a poet because I used to write a lot of poetry and used to write a lot. I'm going to make the argument that I think you are both an architect and a poet today just because I think what you do is so beautiful and artistic. That's uh, flattering. Um, I grew up in a household where architecture wasn't talked about as a purely aesthetic endeavor, but it was talked about as a social practice. I think that comes from the way and the time period that my father was practicing. He was known as a postmodern architect, which is an architect that was practicing in the 80s and using history as a way to drive the form and the shape of buildings. However, I was not a huge fan of the way it looked. And I was a very vocal critic to my father about his own architecture. Um, He was my best friend. He was my co-conspirator. And he wrote me a poem when I was 16 about how when I was born, he looked at me and he thought about the potential of who I was going to be. And he was overwhelmed. It's beautiful. And so where did you go to college? I went to USC, so my education was thankfully free. I went there and it was a real gift because, you know, my father was an incredible father, but he also was a, an intense workaholic. So I really didn't get to know him until I was in his school. And after USC? I went to Harvard, much like Helen. I Two Ivy Leaguers here. Well, it's a little intimidating, I got to tell you. <laughs> unlike Helen, I was not um, a straight-A student in high school. Uh, I have always been a profoundly rebellious person, and I did not appreciate being told what to learn or how to learn it. And I struggled for a great deal of my educational experience up until architecture and 
it was a shock to me that I was at Harvard and I think maybe the similar way that it was a shock to Helen. I can relate to that because I also grew up not being very academic. So I know that's a struggle for a lot of people. Exactly. Great. Um, Any significant sparks that kind of led you on your way to um, where you needed to go? Well, I think being the, you asked Helen about the value of an Ivy League education and I think it's being around other people who really love learning and you're in a place where you're talking about ideas and you're talking about where your personal history fits into that and it was being at the Graduate School of Design with other really passionate people that opened up my eyes to all the different ways that architecture could exist. And then I understand that you spent some time working in Rwanda and Liberia. I had friends that were college classmates that were doing that work. And they, at the time, didn't know how to build it and didn't know how to do it. And they both um, wanted to build hospitals. And I had just been working on the CHLA project, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles construction project. So how long were you there? I traveled back and forth, and this was a two-year long period of time, and it was similarly inspirational in that I could see the real change that architecture could have on people's lives. Uh, Any significant snags that happened before this time that kind of set you back? So at the age of 23, I graduated from the School of Architecture. And my dad had been losing his hair and looking a bit different. And I had a couple of classmates came up to me and said, does your father have cancer? And I said, no, he would tell me if something was wrong. He doesn't keep anything from me. And um, two weeks after I graduated, I was having lunch with him and he told me he had six months to live. Wow. Um, you know, this was, this, the, this was my best friend, my partner, you know, I was going to learn from him how to be an architect. I'm not very traditionally good at tests or exams, and I thought he was really going to, you know, be my lifeline in getting licensed. And um, I'm an only child, and we moved out here. We have no family in Los Angeles. And he did pass away uh, actually four months after the moment that he told me, and he learned that he had cancer in January of that year, but he didn't tell me because he didn't want to affect my ability to complete my education. I'm so sorry to hear that. After he passed away, four months later, my mother passed away from a stroke. And I Just unexpectedly? Completely unexpectedly. So you lost both your parents Mm -hmm. in the same year. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, I think that was a big reevaluation for me. I, I was incredibly successful in architecture school. And I had a very clear path set ahead of me where I was going to apprentice in Japan and I was going to, you know, just do things the way that I, for the first time in my life that they, they should be done. Right. I reevaluated a lot of things in that moment. Wow. It's hard to think about a path forward when you're hit so hard, especially, you know, twice like that. Well, much, much like Helen mentioned, I think I conversely didn't realize the privilege I had right. until that moment when I lost so much of it. Were and you able to stay focused during that time or did you have some time where you were kind of set back? No, absolutely. Like I had to completely become incredibly focused. I had to survive and take care of myself and I had to grow up, you know, 20 years in one day. 
or two rather. And you didn't have any siblings to lean on. It was just you. back on. No. And so I think that it was that moment where I realized how much privilege I had had and I didn't, I really wanted my life to be fruitful and productive. Elizabeth, thank you for sharing all of those personal moments with us. I'd like to shift the direction a little bit and um, talk about the start of your organization. I know that we kind of took an attempt at explaining exactly what you guys do, and I think it's very complex. So Elizabeth, I understand you're one of the co-founders. Can you tell us in your own words how this organization was founded? I founded L.A. Moss in partnership with Mia Lair, who is a landscape architect, 30 years my senior. She and I had been having a conversation surrounding community need, and she's known for being a very engaged and civic-minded landscape designer. And so we started talking about, you know, what L.A. Moss could be. She came up with the name. She's El Salvadorian Jewish. Helen and I really shaped into being what it is, which is an urban design nonprofit that helps lower income communities shape their own growth. And so it's this collaboration between architecture and policy. And I think both of our experiences in Los Angeles as teenagers and young adults, we found a lot of value in the ways in which communities were organically growing on their own. And that's things like street vending or um, patterned sidewalks that we saw somewhere. So it's a lot of those solutions that we lift up and try to make into policy-wide suggestions for the city as a whole. And how long have the two of you been working together? Five years. Helen, tell us your vision or future dreams for the company. When I first met Elizabeth in 2013, I was looking to figure out how I wanted to make an impact in the worlds of community development in Los Angeles. I wanted to work in neighborhoods like Frogtown. We take ideas and realities that are already present and we collaborate with community members to change things. So my vision for LA Moss is that we continue to be able to support communities like Frogtown in being able to grapple with the challenges of displacement and economic development so that there is a place for those people, people like my parents. So my vision for LA Moss is that I hope we can continue to create that systemic change through this kind of cool combination of policy and architecture. Can one of you give a personal story about a person's life that you changed? We were invited to work in Watts by LA City Council member Joe Buscaino in 2014. Our task was to talk to businesses in Wilmington and figure out how can we support them on both a design and technical front to make these small businesses more vibrant. And do you just kind of walk into stores, knock on doors? Is that how it works? We have a really thoughtful approach to community engagement, uh, which is that we know that we are not the experts and the people who've lived and worked there for a long time are the experts. So what we do is We listen, we ask questions, we figure out what the problems are by letting the people who are there define it for us. Okay. So as part of that process, we walked into a business. uh, At that time, it was called Gerardo's Meat Market, and we met Esperanza. It was a fierce, amazing woman, a mother, a wife, and a person who runs this small business, this corner market, for many years. And she had a lot of challenges in terms of where her location was. Um, She worked hard. She was there every day, and she had dreams for her business. And we had the opportunity to help her with the exterior design of her storefront. And in that process, she renamed her business Canasadilla Latina to represent herself and her daughters that help run that business. And Watts is a community that has had a lot of people 
promise them things and ask them questions and there's no outcome. So we're really sensitive to that reality of being burnt out by empty promises. And Esperanza, you know, met us and was a little bit hesitant, but over time she realized that we were, you know, offering something that was free for her, that was authentic, and she had the ability to shape what that would be. And this was all free. They didn't have to pay one penny for any of these services? That's true. The The great thing was that this program was uh, sponsored by the city of Los Angeles. And was there a specific budget that was given per project, or did you guys get to decide what that was? Our budget was very small, and our goal was to figure out how can we maximize the number of businesses we serve with a very small budget. Luckily, there was an area that the city wanted us to focus, and we knocked on every single door and talked to every single business owner, and the ones that wanted help, we were able to help all of them. Incredible. So what was the transformation like? It was the creation of a kind of business corridor. And I think that what was interesting is that when the council office came to us, they said, everyone does the same thing. There's not really much that's, that kind of separates these businesses. They're all just surviving. And they were right, but... As we started to meet with these business owners, it became clear that there were things that they saw as their contribution or their identity. Right. And in one case, it was you know handmade pinatas, and in another case, it was Esmeralda's incredible sandwiches. It was all there, things that are so important to that community and their culture. Absolutely. Um, and so we were teasing all this stuff out, and the signage and the storefronts were reflecting that. Um, Do they get to be involved in that process, in the design process? Do yeah, they get absolutely. to choose colors? Yes, and, yes. And, all, and so it, even... So it's very it, collaborative. Super collaborative. But for us, this was a learning project in that we were learning so much about the people that we were collaborating with and working with, these small business owners, but we couldn't do more than just the superficial storefront. And from there, Helen and I sat down and said, listen, we have to figure out how to go back to the council office and ask them to give us the ability to help them with small business permitting issues, help them formalize their business, help so them with their So that's where the policy plan. part of this kind of came into play? Quasi-policy, but more, you know, just small business support mm-hmm. or the kind of small business uh, support services that the city does offer, but it doesn't meet the business at its front door. And the, you know, on the one hand, it's a successful project. We get a lot of press for it. But on the other hand, for us, it was a pivotal moment where we kind of leaned into our relationship and we wanted to do more. We felt an obligation to be investing at another level, which is what we do. And how long did the transformation take on the specific project? It was a six-month process where we knocked on a door and got some permits, went through the design process, and in the two weeks that we were out there painting and hand-painting signage. and Do you uh, guys personally paint, or do you have a team that does we that? We partnered with LA Trade Tech. They have the only sign-painting um, program in the nation. Wow. And so we partnered with someone named Doc, who is in a sign-painter documentary that I had watched in the middle of the engagement process and said, these people are going to save our lives, and they did. And so we partnered with them, and they brought their entire sign-painting school out. So there were 20 sign-painter apprentices out painting storefronts. It was also really special because we hired uh, five local youth from Watts to help us with the engagement process, and they were also there helping us paint. And that was really special because they were from around the Watts community. Some of them were second-generation public housing project 
uh, residents. A couple of them were parents, right? Four of the five were parents. And just to see them have the opportunity to connect with their neighbors in a meaningful way, uh, it, was a, it was an honor and a privilege for us. And for Esperanza, she, what was really special was when she saw her storefront completed, she cried. And she thanked us, and she today um, is maintaining the beautiful design that our team kind of came up with that really reflected Ganasaria Latina. So besides giving her an obvious sense of pride in her business and kind of a new fresh start, are there any other kind of tangible results that she's been able to see, or do you know if there have been? For sure. I, I think as a nonprofit, we are asked a lot of times, what is the tangible outcome of our work? And it is hard to track that with architectural investment. Um, but I can say that de- being able to change someone's perception of the world being out to get them to, oh, well, you know, people will give you something if they say they're going to give it to you. Right. And also, a lot of these small business owners don't have the ability to leave their small business. Right. The other thing that I love that you're doing is, you know, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, and I see so many developments going up around town, and you can just tell that they're done with so um, little attention to any sense of artfulness or design and, you know, it's kind of put up and it's it's there and it's kind of serving a purpose. But again, I think what you're bringing is a level of detail that makes people feel something. And, and like you said, sometimes that's not tangible, but at the same time, it's it's such an important part of what drives a community. I want to talk about your partnership. I have a business partner. I've had one for 22 years, and I know partnerships can be fun, they can be challenging. I want to understand the dynamic of how the two of you work. Uh, Elizabeth and I have a really special partnership, and I think it's because we're different. We're opposites. I like to think of Elizabeth as the visionary, though she doesn't like that term, but she comes up with all the cool, crazy ideas, and I'm kind of the strategic implementer. I kind of... uh, I'm good at making things happen, and I love the systems and structures to figure out the budget, the politics, the staffing, but I love to help rein in her ideas and uh, turn it into something. For all of our differences, we have similar styles of communicating, and we have the same value system, I think. And so that makes it work, even though I think our it, it's undeniable that I am a bit more out there and scatterbrained sometimes. For both of us, it's been a gift to be able to grow into personality traits and roles that I think on our own we might not have. And so that's been wonderful. I would say also a core part of what makes our partnership work is that we trust one another. We're also very open to taking constructive feedback. We actually love giving each other feedback and receiving it, doing it in a really kind of respectful, fun um an empathetic way. So I think that core, being able to know that we can trust one another, we have each other's backs, and we share the same values, make it possible for us to work together. Perfect. And fun to work together. Great. Love to hear that. You both spoke about some snags that you had before you worked together. Is there any specific snag that you can think of that you've kind of had to ever overcome, you know, as partners since you started working together? One of the beautiful parts of our relationship and partnership was that Elizabeth started the nonprofit as the co-founder and invited me to join the organization um, as a director of social impact. And 
during that time, I think for the first year, she uh, gave me the opportunity to kind of grow, figure things out, to lead, but it was informal and it was uh, kind of uh, unofficial. And as someone who started the organization, she had that kind of ability, the courage, the generosity to share a leadership space with me. So I think a year and a half after joining the organization, we decided to be co-executive directors together, uh, which was a big shift for both of us to make something that was implicit, more explicit, and to be more clear about roles and responsibilities and figuring out what it meant to co-lead together. We approach leadership in a different way. We also come from very different disciplines. Her world of design and architecture and fabrication is very different from my world of planning and community engagement and politics. So there's a lot of jargon in each of our fields, and we had to understand. But how powerful that you both kind of come from two different perspectives that, you know, where your worlds collide and you've, you know, created this incredible organization. How about any um, giant kind of shifts in, you know, since you've worked together in terms of, wow, what we're doing is, you know, really working or it's making an impact or people care about this. Can you talk about one project where you both kind of looked at each other and, you know, maybe had a high five moment and said, this is good? One moment that was really exciting for us was that for the past two or three years, we've been kind of leading the effort in defining what the potential of the accessory dwelling unit is, also known as ADUs, granny flat, in-law unit, backyard home. It could be freestanding. It could also be attached to an existing home. Um, the rules are that it has to be in a single family property. And uh, usually it's in one of the half a million single family lots that exist in Los Angeles. Got it. We've been helping the city of Los Angeles design a pilot project, an ADU in Highland Park. And that, that was a big challenge. It's a hillside. It's a historic zone. And our role was to find the homeowner who was going to participate in this project and to be the architect to design um, the city's ADU pilot to demonstrate that it could be well-designed, affordably built. That and, you're, and you're doing this because there's a housing crisis in Los Angeles, there's there's nowhere to go anymore, right? That was part of the inspiration for this? Yes. And for this project, which is currently under construction, it'll be done at the end of this year, we're building a unit that is going to be for someone who is um, you know, middle class, who can afford to pay for the construction. And we learned so many lessons, the city has learned so many lessons that we think will inform their new policy, potentially inform future programming. But for us, we wanted to figure out how can we create affordable ADUs so that we can either help a low-income homeowner who may be cash poor and asset rich because they own land but they have no ability to build a backyard home. One of the most exciting parts is that we've gotten in the past two years perhaps a grant to support our vision that we had. How can we bridge our ability to design contextually and thoughtfully in the world of ADUs and make sure that we're contributing back to society by having these ADUs be affordable. So that's a program that we're launching this summer called Backyard Homes Project, which is a one-stop shop that is going to help homeowners design, build, finance an ADU in exchange for being a landlord uh, for five years uh, to someone who's low income. Great. One of our recent high five moments was realizing that our team is at a place where the people we've hired are not only passionate and supportive of our mission, but they are talented and uh, able to work together across disciplines. So for Elizabeth and I to be able to 
walk away, to be out for a while and know that we have a team of people who are able to see it through. So it's not Helen and Elizabeth's show. It's not about public policy and architecture, but it's about this approach to working. Um, That's been exciting. I think it's a really good point you just made. I think a lot of people think that um, moments of success have to be these huge wins. But when you're building a, a company or an organization, sometimes it's the little wins that are really meaningful. And so as a business owner, you know, I can really relate to that as well. Something that has been happening um, is that we've been asked by different organizations to come in and talk about how we're able to do engagement that is so um, different and productive and meaningful. And Helen and I both do not have a background in engagement, but I think the the other point is that we have an office that represents the diversity of Los Angeles. And so... When I'm talking to people from the professional background of architecture or design, they say, how do you contend with people who don't want to build something in their backyards or contend with someone who doesn't want to see any change in their neighborhood? And I ask them, how do you go about having that conversation in, in your office? And they say, well, we put up flyers and we rent out a, a church community room and we wait for people to come. And they don't come, and so they don't care. And it's a really strange situation to be in where there's such a big gulf between their perspective and mine that you go to people where they're at and that you uh, don't talk to them you you know talk with them and that you have someone in your office that represents the community that you're interested in working with and it's that representation that's key it's relevant to the people that we're working with and and that's a way of us being sustainable i think that's one of the most beautiful things that you guys do is that you're not coming into these communities you know acting like you know how to change it or you know fix it for them but you're really understanding their perspective and getting their input and it's a collaboration that's really nice okay i have uh, one more question for you elizabeth so you have two daughters and a son So um, what do you want to pass down to your children? Well, I was unaware that I was growing up in a community of privilege. And I would like my children to know that. I would like them to understand that they have a great deal of privilege that they navigate within. And I want them to understand that that's a big responsibility for them to participate um, in society. And I don't care if they go to an Ivy League school, but I do care a great deal if they give back to their community and they support people who have less and they make it their life's work to help others. So that that's very important to me. Okay, Helen, any other kind of words of wisdom that you would like to pass on to anyone who's listening? I feel like I am so lucky to have a job that I love. So I know that is Um, something that I'm privileged to have and I hope that uh, people are able to uh, think intentionally about what kind of work they want to do to make it something that they enjoy and I'm lucky to get to do that in a large part because of Elizabeth and our amazing LA Moss team. Great. Well I'm going to hand the mic over to Amanda in a second because she has a few uh, questions for you that she's prepared but I just want to thank you both for being here and you know you're both touching lives of people in ways that are so meaningful so thank you for all the incredible work you do. All right Amanda you want to come over? Thank you Valerie. Okay so growing up my mom had a small business and it's kind of in my blood to just believe in local businesses. I'm curious 
How does zoning support local businesses and what kinds of changes are you trying to make in the realm of zoning? For a lot of small businesses, zoning and specifically kind of building and safety requirements means that lots of small businesses have to go through a whole process to be properly permitted. So I think beyond zoning, it's really the rules that govern the operations of a business, especially a small storefront and a commercial strip in a commercial building. For many businesses, especially working class immigrant business owners, there's so much that a business owner has to do. Get your permits. If you put a sign on your building, you're supposed to go to the city of Los Angeles to pull a permit. The majority of signs you see in front of our small businesses are probably not permitted because the cost to go get a permit, to pay an architect to draw up the plans, is probably more expensive than how much it costs to put that signage up. If you are a small business that may not have the resources or the knowledge to go about pulling all the right permits that you need to operate, it's hard. And it's also strange. I think a lot of us don't realize that the way the city looks was laid out and governed and decided 60, 70, 80 years ago by a bunch of dead white men. And so they were representing their perspective, and I don't think it's necessarily one that reflects the diversity and the culture of the current Los Angeles. And so that's something that a lot of these business owners come up against. How do you go about changing that? It seems so massive. I think it's through individual efforts. Uh, we have, we applaud our friends in the East LA Community Corporation and Leadership for Urban Renewal Network and LA Food Policy Council for trying to allow and legalize street vending in Los Angeles. LA is one of the few major cities that don't allow for street vendors and we have lots of street vendors. Our team in LA Mass is supportive of it, but we're not leading it. I think part of our focus has been how can we support those small businesses that are in small storefronts and commercial districts? How can we support their building, their exterior, so that the community around it feel as though it's a place that they want to go? Because reality is these many of these small businesses aren't able to maintain or invest in their sidewalk or in their building. Most small business owners are tenants, and they may not even have leases. They don't have rights Um Residents, actually, renters have greater rights than small business owners, and and that's something that's going to take a big overhaul. Do you guys worry that um, part of Northeast LA or the communities that you're serving will be bought out by big developers? Yeah. It's already happening. It's happened. I don't think we can stop those kind of capitalistic forces. I think what we could do is think about how can we channel the resources um, and our invitations to work in communities to be as helpful as we can to the unfortunately few business owners that we get to work with. And when we do, it's a real privilege. There's a space between uh, people being displaced and there being economic investment. And I think we're hoping to work in that space where it's a negotiation. And so our projects don't represent, you know, a whole community being revitalized or things massively, you know, changing at a large scale, but they are these one-off projects that represent alternative outcomes or alternative futures. The idea that if you have everyone at the table, you can negotiate a situation where everyone gets to stay. Because LA can't continue to be the pretty house with a green lawn and everyone gets their slice, because everyone doesn't. And so there should be a conversation about what mid-density looks like and what people are comfortable having. 
so that we can include more people in being homeowners and having that stability. And I think this is a debate that is happening around the country. I'm from New York, and you see it happening in New York as well. You know, the population is growing around the country, so it's really important to have these these conversations. Thank you guys so much. I was so excited to talk to you, and this has been eye-opening. Thank you so much. It's been a treat for us as well. It was really fun. Thank <laughs> you.